0: Well, my version of the Canada is true, and everybody else's is false. Canadians sort of deceive themselves. The good story is that we're just nice. Again. At the end of the day, we're not really all that social democratic.
1: Thank you very much for coming. Uh, Just for everyone who's watching, we're joined by Ian McKay. He is leading a well-respected historian and the chair of L.R. Wilson Institute. At McMaster University. That's right. Awesome. So, just a bit about my goal today. My goal is to figure out a Canadian identity. And is there one? either multiple? I'm not really interested in political spectra because when I did the research, I realized how Polarizing an issue actually yes is. uh, I'm not really interested in the political aspect of it, although we might touch on it rather than the history of it how we got here and uh, what historical historical events led us to a point that we are in so to to begin with um, is there one Canadian
0: identity? I think a good way of looking at it is to say there are five Canadian identities all wrestling for the the soul of the country and that's the paradox and interest in being a Canadian is that Canadians, if you back them into a corner and say, okay, what is it finally that defines Canada? What are the core Canadian values? You'll get five different sets of answers that sometimes can be sort of woven together and sometimes they're just completely antithetical to each other. Somehow these five Nations, in quotation marks, seem to live together in the same country. But they're really uh, striking differences. And I think, you know, so a good way of just testing that with your friends or, you know, people you don't know, say, okay, you're a Canadian. What does that mean to you? What What does it finally mean to you? What is the absolutely decisive thing? Who are your heroes? Who are your villains? What are the great moments in your country's history? get five different sets of answers. <laughs> that's, that's, I find that not alarming, but interesting. Right? Okay.
1: And if there are five, can you name them,
0: please? Sure. I would, uh, well, just rhyming them off, I would say, first of all, there's the British definition of Canada. Canada, by definition, is a British dominion by a British monarch, and its core traditions are British. There's the French tradition. Canada was Descended from New France, the first European colony. That is our core tradition, uh, and so many of our national symbols come from the French, not the English. Right? Oh, really? Um, then For there's example. the first. There's the whole First Nations, which is now resurgent and really taking both of those European-defined definitions of the country and saying, "No, you are both arrived way later than the First Nations." Uh, and really, the country you call Canada is, was settled by indigenous people for 20,000 years. Uh, and you can't really claim that you have founded the country. Okay. The core traditions are actually native traditions. Look at all the place names in Canada and there's, you know, the number of native. So those three, those three definitions, you could say, are kind of the almost ethnocultural definitions. But then there are two further ones when you ask Canadians, what does it mean to be Canadian? And one further set of definitions, the fourth one would be to say, Canada is basically a place where the individual can be free, above all, to own property, to establish a business, to achieve the Canadian dream. Uh, Canada is by definition a liberal capitalist country. Okay. And then a fifth definition, popular among many Canadians, is that Canada – no, that's quite wrong. Canada is a a social democratic welfare state. And the core Canadian values are those that you see in things like Medicare and taking care of people and public provision. We're the kinder, gentler version of the United States. We're so much – we're morally superior. We're peaceable. We're – and each of these five groups have their what we call myth symbol complexes, right? And they each would say, you know, who's the most important Canadian? They would each give you different answers, strikingly different answers. I find that's really interesting.
1: And, okay, so if we have five that are not – some sometimes they – I'm sure they interact with each other and there are some common things – and sometimes they're completely different. So as some t- a lot of people call it, it's a mosaic, right? Do you have an explanation why Canada became a mosaic of all these identities that will interact and be right next to each other, but would never really cross rather than a melting pot that yeah. the US claims they are?
0: So, you know, Let's go with the the, the feel-good story and then the real story. Sure. Okay. <laughs> oh, the feel-good. Feel that's the good. The feel-good story is that we're just nice. Uh-huh. And, you know, melting pots are for people who like to boil things down and, you know, this kind of... I don't know very earthy kind of raw image you know you're going to take these people and pour things and boil them down and melt them down into this new thing, whereas the Canadians are much kinder and gentler, and people can come here and be themselves and that's the official story, the multicultural story um, and you know i i I'm not trying to disrespect people who firmly believe in that, but I think the real story is that neither Canada emerges at the borderline of two big empires. The American Empire and the British Empire, neither of which can dominate Northern North America. So they have to kind of come to a kind of arrangement where neither of them is going to claim it and annex it outright. Uh, So what are they going to do? Well, you have this kind of division of authority always in Canada between an external power and an internal power. So Canada, in a sense, is not a sovereign state. It's always shared its sovereignty with another big empire. Today, the American empire, and down to the 1940s, the British empire. We've never actually had that moment, that war of independence moment, when we say, we, the people of Canada, this is our defining moment. That's why you have these five definitions, right? Because people sort of yearn for that clarity that definition here we stand we can do no other you know we're, we're Canadians this is what we finally are people really want that but they can't get it out of Canadian history mm-hmm. or they can't get it honestly so they'll they'll spin out these myths and symbols and complex notions that basically justify them saying well my version of the Canada is true and everybody else's is false well hang so, on there if you really want to govern the country You've got to take these five ways of being Canadian very seriously because many, many people believe in them. And if you trample all over one of them, you're going to hear about it.
1: I wanted to run a kind of a bounce, an idea or a theory that I might thought, like I read, read about and I'd th- be interested to hear your perspective. So, uh, one of the explanations to the mosaic and why it was a mosaic, because when uh, French people and British Empire came over and we take indigenous brackets because they came in, as was like, this is our land, that's it. But then when Canada was originated, right? So, there was a, this whole pull and push with McDonald and Curti, right? And the fact that they were instead of maybe going just like the us did a civil war and bang the door out and that said we are free like we're our own nation now they were able to negotiate with the british empire and exit peacefully and to do that they had to negotiate inside in, uh, inside of a country between french canada and british canada and then cartier on its uh, in its regard was able to kind of promise and guarantee the French part of Canada that their language would stay the same, their culture would stay the same. And that's how, because from the very beginning, British and like the, the British side and the French side were not really interested in becoming one, basically. They were like, okay, this is you and this is I, let's kind of work together so we can be our own country. Do you think there's some truth in that? Or there's is- a lot of
0: truth in that. And I think you've put your finger on one of the core features of the Canadian system of government. Why we are one of the most decentralized federations in the world goes back to that French-English dynamic from the 1840s to the 1860s when the country's institutions were you know, consolidated. And neither side can really take over and wipe out the other. But you have to really pay attention to what the both sides were after. What Carshay, for example, was after with his alliance with MacDonald. In some ways, it wasn't just that they wanted to exit the British Empire peacefully. They also wanted to make money. They wanted a railway system. They wanted to have a go-getting economy, just as exciting and dynamic as Britain's. So rather than wipe each other out and indulge in sort of this war between two peoples, they said, okay, what, how can we agree on a minimal program? And that minimal program was like, let's build railways. Let's develop cotton manufacturing industries. Let's develop coal. Let's do all these things and a certain number of these people can make a great deal of money, car being a great example, right? Lawyer for the railways. McDonald's staking his whole political career on building the railway. So that's, you know, if you're, if you're looking at how it really went down, it wasn't this kind of noble experiment in biculturalism. It's much more pragmatic business-like arrangement between powerful men, very few men coming together to make a liberal capitalist society. And that is that is really core to the the process in the 19th century. And then the people who want to make it a social democratic country, they emerge much later, really from the 1930s on, and they're trying to contest that whole way of thinking about Canada. So it's, it's, even at that level, we don't have agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Fun. <laughs> and, and, and lots of good historians will say, you know, confederation, how much some Canadians make a big deal of confederation, say the country was born in 1867. From the French Canadian perspective, confederation was attractive because it was a divorce, not a marriage. It was a divorce that allowed Quebec, the people of Quebec, the nation of the Canadiens, to develop their own freestanding autonomous institutions in Quebec, institutions that would guarantee the existence of the French language and guarantee French civil law. We mm. have two systems of law in the country. Why is that? Well, because of this deal. And so they didn't see it as a, a happy marriage that was going to found a new nation. They thought they would have at least two nations, and they would agree to kind of cohabit in this <laughs> federation. It's, it's the most, that's why it's the most decentralized federation you know, you're know, you going to see in, throughout much of the world because they insisted on it.
1: And I think there's a really cool quote actually for that. Like I was able to find when the whole, when the Confederation was born in Ontario, in newspapers, they wrote that a new nationality was born. Or in Quebec they wrote, we affirm our existence as a separate nationality. <laughs> okay. Don't you think that the idea of multiculturalism, so then the so-and-so and so and so right, right. So just even from the get-go. Yeah. And- the, this is us and this is you. So like, as long as you don't touch our side of things, right. you can do whatever you want.
0: And you know, you can get a glimpse of the complexity of this by looking at that word nation and speaking English, or you think of the United Nations, we mean countries, we mean sovereign states. But nation in French means something much more cultural, much more, it's much a much richer idea. It doesn't have to be a formal nation state. So the French Canadians have considered themselves a nation since the 18th century. They have a national assembly in Quebec City, not a, a provincial legislature. They see themselves as a nation and have for a very long time, and will for a very long time. That's just a fact of life. Okay, <laughs>
1: just agree, just roll with it. And uh, then
0: you see, and then from the rise of the First Nations, that that name starts to become popular in the 1970s. It's in reaction to these people who say there are two nations in Canada. Indigenous people say, "What about us? Are we chopped liver?" Well. <laughs> Yeah, you know, We are the first nations, yeah. and that's where that term gets going. And in fact, that starts to be impacted on, in the constitution itself. So the very constitution of the country has changed without Canadians, by and large, really noticing to incorporate First Nations treaties with Europei- European colonizers, and those have legal and constitutional weight these days.
1: Despite uh of what people wish why the why people wish that canada was born right. because we wanted you said it was way more pragmatic they want their own economy right. the booming how then how how did canada because it started as a this individualistic capitalistic society ended up being what it is today which is still there's um still a, a side or a part of capitalism However, with a very, very strong social platform, how, what can you name? Like, I don't know, three events, for example, or two events, one event that actually like may, might change the trajectory. The depression changes a
0: great deal. So I would say like, if you're looking at the underlying social economic impetus behind the rise of a left in Canada, you would say the depression is, is really fundamental. And that sense, Canadians have one of the worst depressions in the world because the economy is so resource-oriented and also because this is a very hard-line state that we have in Canada in the 1930s. The Americans go in for all sorts of softer, gentler kind of welfare state approaches to the unemployed. Canadians just lock them up in prison camps in the in the northern woods where you have these lice-ridden, you know, we treat them like criminals, basically. Mm-hmm. So we're much har- we're much harsher. Okay, so the response to that is like also far more emphatic. It's like, okay, we we don't want to do this anymore, and you get this mass resistance to the hardships of the depression and the the election of North America's first socialist government in 1944 in Saskatchewan. Kind of a very lucky break for the left because the, you just had to all the stars had to align for that to happen. But once they did align, you had socialists who weren't crazy freaks anymore, but they actually had charge of a province and which they governed for, you know, quite successfully for decades and bring in the first versions of the Canadian welfare state in the form of public Medicare. So going to the second big thing, you would say, well, it's that break with private medicine. Now most Canadians would say, oh, well, that's one thing we're not going to give up in Canada is we're not, do we don't want to go to an American system of medical care that starts under the socialist government. And then the liberals who are, keen to, you know, they're always watching for where the public opinion is going and trying to <laughs> catch, up to, catch it. up to it. And the 1960s, they're in real trouble. They're having minority governments. They, Oh, maybe we should start borrowing some of these social democratic ideas. And that's when you start to get coast to coast medical care. You know, to disagree with you a little bit, I don't, I'm not sure it's that ambitious a form of the welfare state. I think if you're ranking it in the world, we're not really even quite at the middle of the pack. We're kind of, you know, yeah. I'd say like for C-plus students of okay. <laughs> public welfare. Okay. But I mean, it's certainly better
1: than nothing. It's one of those messy compromises. So. And then why, but so U.S. reacted very differently to the Great Depression rather than Canada did it. Although my understanding would be that before 19... 19- uh, the the economic policy of two countries were close like very close very close so why did they react so differently
0: well I think in some ways they didn't react that differently but I think the logic of Canada because as you pointed out the Federation is so decentralized so in Canada you could have the election of a socialist government that started to run things in a very distinctive way bringing in all these very left-wing policies. And there was no easy way for Ottawa to just throw it out. Because remember, it goes back to that French-English compact where the provinces have a lot of power, constitutional power. You can't easily throw it out. And if you do, you'll have a huge political price to pay for it, right? So in that sense, the decentralization of the country actually plays to the left, it benefits this these people in Saskatchewan. And then once that model starts to kind of work, it seems attractive, it starts to be picked up by other provinces. What's Ottawa supposed to do? Rule all the provinces are breaking the law? It doesn't have the power to do that. So the Constitution is different. Whereas in the States, you have a far, far harder drive to a free enterprise economy in the 50s and a far bigger war economy. And that really is a, another... Factor that you'd have to bear in mind, right? That so I think the countries start to diverge fairly emphatically in the fifties, but never forget they're also tied together. Mm -hmm. Canadians like to read uh, American magazines; they like to watch American movies. Piles of Canadians go down to live in the states, so they're bringing back American ideas of how they. So it's never even at that level; it's not a very straightforward country, right? Are Canadians really Canadians when they live half the year in Florida? <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess snowbirds would say, yes, of course I am. But you know, for some of us, well, if you're only here half the year, how deep is your commitment to the country? I mean, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's certainly a weird place.
1: So right now, would you, would you say that Canada is more on a collective side, collectivism, or more individualistic side?
0: Here you'd have, this is my opinion and not that of most historians. I think we're still very individualistic. I think actually kind of liberal, classical liberal, 19th century competitive liberal ethos is very pervasive in Canada. And over and over again, especially in our own area, you see governments being elected that represent those values. I think a lot of people who came to Canada in the Cold War, in the 50s, as immigrants, that's the Canada they were selecting. They wanted to make good. They, you know, they wanted the American dream, only this was kind of its northern version, right? So I think, really, I think that classical liberal strain is incredibly powerful in Canada and has been since the middle of the 19th century. Uh, so I don't really buy the idea that Canadians are kinder, kinder, and gentler in lots of respects. And in some ways, Medicare is kind of a an outrider. You know, it, it's 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 an exception, not the rule. Uh, if you look at things like housing policies, where you why can't why can't you buy a house? Well, the free market is basically running the show in in the private housing market and has for decades how do you change that well you're not going to do it very easily through state policies canadians are infatuated with cars we just love cars you know mm-hmm. toronto is the most car centric place on the continent apart from los angeles okay. uh, some of the canadian highways are the most traveled in the in the world it's like i think this this is canadians sort of deceive themselves especially canadian leftists deceive themselves when they underestimate the extent to which canadians are individualistic and want things. <laughs> okay. And, the, and and why do they do that? Because of... It's deeply instilled in us as part of a liberal order that to succeed in life you should acquire lots of stuff. You should have your own house. Have lots of stuff. You should have a late model car that's better than your neighbor. Still. And if you don't have those things. You're kind of a failure in the eyes of your parents and you aren't really a big deal. Look at the number of entrepreneurs that we we, we worship and the <laughs> people we think are you know terrifically important people because they've made an awful lot of money. Read the newspapers of Toronto and what will you find? Well, you're not going to find a whole lot of social commentary. You'll find a little in the Toronto Star. What you'll find are a lot of advertisements for Southern Vacation, luxury <laughs> goods, uh, cars, cars, cars. I think Canadians have really uh, bought this massively. And to pretend otherwise doesn't do us any service, especially if you're like me and you would really like them to grow into another form of life. You shouldn't underestimate the extent to which this one, this com- CB McPherson would call it possessive individualism, right? This is a possessive individualism where your quality as a person means you are, you're an ownership of your own body, you're the ownership of your own life, and you're the ownership of all this stuff. Okay. And that testifies to your worth as a human being. And your right to be a powerful human being, more powerful than people that don't have property. And okay. that, I think that goes really deep in Canadians' psychology and culture.
1: Despite maybe the current trends where we were more right. you were part of a bigger group or a right. larger group dis- despite how many times justin trudeau like talks about we like we, like uh, not even justin trudeau just a lot of people talk about the group identity on a rise in canada specifically and uh well dis- the push will come to shove if if for example you had a, an actual
0: regime which said you can't all have your own cars or if you're going to have this highway 401 crisscrossing a city you're going to have to pay a toll to cross it that will recompense people and the state for all of the health consequences of 401 try that as a politician and you'll be out of office okay <laughs> faster than you can okay because canadians do not want to pay higher taxes uh uh-huh. look at the you know just just talk honestly about okay you like this welfare state but you really don't want to pay for it that's that is the awkward compromise Another and the paradox personally i think canadians should face up to reality and say okay we can't actually keep on living this way we are consuming the planet at a rate that is staggering you know we've, we're developing all of these oil sands uh, that are basically environmentally devastating and and there's no sure x you know the the idea to a sustainable planet isn't to build more pipelines and more pipelines and more pipelines but that is a very hard thing to sell politically and the core reason for that is because people like their things and they like they've bought the possessive individualism that cb McPherson was talking about so
1: and that's why i think it's very hard to change that And that's why you're saying there's this fifth class, like fifth identity that you brought all the back in the beginning of this. uh, Yeah, that would be
0: kind of the left identity. and I think it's well worth studying and analyzing in depth. And these are serious people. And uh, I think their ideas deserve to be taken seriously. But I don't think serious leftists would say we're running the show. Why not? Well, because I do like, or I think- It's my informational bubble, because I'm like, I'm right now, like,
1: you explaining it to me, and then I drive on 401 right. every day, and it is insanely busy. And yes, in my building, people have two two cars, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's right. And then I remember the last time I went to Yorkdale Mall, oh, and I remember yeah. what happened there in Toronto. And I was like, oh my God, this is so true. But then I look at it from maybe economically or bigger scale bigger scale economically we're like well but on the other hand we have a whole bunch of corporations uh the bigger corporations we don't really have a lot of s- so many small businesses if you compare it to states uh you have a lot of corporations that actually run by government or somehow affiliated with government which doesn't really fit the individualistic perspective uh that kind of you describe i'm like well we're way more collective uh way more social in that degree
0: yeah i think you want to play that one cautiously
1: yeah way more social
0: i mean i think in a way we can get into wishful thinking that. and i think americans can also get into wishful thinking and thinking that their economy isn't actually massively influenced by the state especially military expenditures and the whole military industrial complex, all of the things that actually the state is involved with in the United States, and of course the size of their federal deficit now is just astonishing right This suggests to me that the the old idea that they are the free enterprisers, we're sort of the social democrats it needs a lot of it needs a lot of qualification, and I think at the end of the day we're not really all that social democratic um I think a provincial government that gets elected in Ontario, for example, if it really did say, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do a serious welfare state. We're really going to go for social equality. We don't want people freezing anymore under the Gardner Expressway in Toronto as, you know, people do every month through a Canadian winter. We think this is a scandal and an abuse in one of the richest countries in the world that people should be homeless and freezing to death in winter. And, uh... So we're going to implement a welfare state in which these things don't happen. We're going to close food banks because people won't need food banks. Uh, we will have a state that provides for people at a minimal level, and you don't have to be poor. We don't have native communities that are without clean water in a first-ruled country. <laughs> now, I, I personally would sign on to such a thing. But then I would, I would just caution people's, there's going to be a price to be paid for all of that. And the price to be paid is going to be in taxes. It's going to be in some loss of your personal freedom to manage your businesses and your properties the way you want to manage them. You'd have to have far closer regulation over people's lives. And there would be, I would predict staunch resistance to such a program. That's the left's dilemma.
1: Um, kind of the last thing I wanted to ask your opinion on, uh, which is what I guess here we are actually like going politics, politics. Um, it's a politics, psychology, and everything together. So, like the, the famous, I just wanted to ask you about the famous statement by Justin Trudeau about there is no core identity, no mainstream in Canada, there are only shared values. Openness, respect, compassion, willingness to work hard, to be there for each other, to search for equality and justice. Those qualities are what make us the first post-national state. Again, disclose to everyone, I'm not a Canadian citizen. Don't send me your hate mail. I'm uh, So, do you think that a post-national state first of all is it does it make sense and second of all if it's will it ever be a logical conclusion to a mosaic that's kind of that started way way back and kind of continues now with five identities that you just
0: i think in the case of Justin's idealistic comment about Canadian core values of truth and justice and compassion for each other. And so on, I would just counterbalance those with Canadian passion for selling arms to Saudi Arabia, Canadian passion for pushing pipelines through indigenous lands, both of those driven by good old fashioned possessive individual, let's make money. And I think this is a tension within liberal thought in Canada. I'm not discounting the idealism and the sincerity with which Justin said those words. But I think he's missing kind of the hard, hard edge of Canadian politics here. That in a way, his party will never forget, even if it sounds like they've forgotten it, which was we have to satisfy the business community and we have to satisfy people who want pipelines. Mm watch where the money goes as well as where the words go. <laughs> okay. Very, very interesting. So, and, and as for this idea of a post-national nation, yeah. there might be a core of truth to it in that I think a country that has these five identities going on all at once is a kind of a complicated place. And Canadians get so frustrated and they say, well, surely you know that A core canadian value is and then they'll rhyme something off like hockey (laughs) everybody just has to love hockey in canada well lots of actually lots of canadians don't and you know they don't they don't follow it uh well every canadian must love tim hortons i mean that's that's got to be well okay but (laughs) every canadian must acknowledge that vimy the country was born on the on the side of vimy ridge in 1917. canadian soldiers laid down their lives for the country Actually, that's never been accepted in Quebec at all and was not accepted by most of the people who fought at Vimy Ridge. Um, All of these are very frail myths. So I can see the logic of what Trudeau was saying is none of these unifying definitions of the country really work. That's true. But whether it makes it post-national or whether people's senses of nationality are just more deeply embedded in their locations and their provinces. That's an that's a, I think a more complicated question. I don't think Quebec is going to very soon lose its sense of being a nation. I don't think they're going to rename the national assembly, a provincial as provincial house anytime soon. I don't think first nations feel themselves to be in a post national setting. I think first nations actually are being more and more emphatic and saying, we are this people. We have a right, an ancestral right to this land. Don't tamper with it. That is, uh, to me, a declaration of the rights of a nation. So I think if you're discounting the force and power of nationalism in Canada, you're also making a kind of mistake. And don't discount, too, the the first nationalism I mentioned was the British nationalism. You know, people who revere the legacy of the United Empire loyalists. And the Brock Monument at, Queens, you know, at Queenston, and all of this stuff that tells people deeply that they are British. That's not gone away. So I think you really have to be careful with these generalizations about the whole country's sense of identity. And I think there are at least five. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. And, you know, I, I would always say to some people that that drives them to despair. Like, okay, we'll never get there. We'll never have this wonderful moment when we just hug each other and say, ah, finally, you know, it's, well, hey, in a lot of other countries, these aren't such huggable moments. They're kind of brutal. Nationalism can actually be a very, this kind of unitary integral nationalism can be very brutal. But the second thing is maybe it is kind of interesting to have these five definitions of the country going at the same time. Maybe actually they can learn a lot from each other as they have since Confederation. i said, say, well, we can sort of arrive at kind of a loose and rough and ready balance here. It makes our politics kind of unpredictable, but also deeply creative. So for me, it's not an occasion for despair. It's an occasion, first of all, for realism. This is just the facts of the matter. And secondly, it's kind of more optimistic, you know, and and surprising. And, And it's also kind of a fun country because you'll go to places where you think you know what is obviously the case and they don't, they don't see it that way at all. Well, you can take that as threatening or you can say, you know, that's really interesting that you don't share any of what I think is obviously the case.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: Well, I think to kind of summarize everything, I think I found this amazing quote, Canadian is someone who knows how to make love in a canoia without <laughs> tipping it. And I think that kind of summarizes the whole conversation perfectly. Right, okay. Thank you, thank yeah. you very much. And uh, everyone behind, you like and subscribe and lovely stuff. And we'll come back next week with a new topic. Thank you again. <laughs>